Welcome back to No Blueprint. In this episode, we talk to an impressive young man from South Seattle named Gurmai Zahalai. Gurmai immigrated to the United States from Sudan when he was just three years old, and despite neither of his parents going to high school or college, he was able to graduate from Stanford University and the University of Pennsylvania Law School. Today, he's an attorney and community leader with a commitment to disadvantaged youth. He founded Rising Leaders, Inc., a youth leadership and mentorship program which he started in New York City and is bringing to Seattle. We interview Gamai to understand how his culture and background have shaped his work ethic, leadership style, and commitment to his community. When you're an immigrant kid who does well in high school, the cultural pressure tells you to be a doctor. You know, mm-hmm. if, you know, in, yeah. in Ethiopia and, and maybe in a lot of countries in the Eastern Hemisphere, being right. a doctor is next to nobility. It's a status symbol. Yeah. It's yeah. not just a profession. So, <laughs> uh, growing up, I was told, "Be a doc. You're smart. Be a doctor. Be a doctor. Be mm-hmm. a doctor." So. What's up, everybody? I go by the name of Domo. And I go by the name of Yoshko. And each week, we sit down with cultural ambassadors to talk about how they defied societal norms to live their lives with with no no blueprint. blueprint. How do I define culture? In general, you'll probably get this sense from this interview, but I see the world very scientifically. So I see culture as a force, a force that we need to study in order to understand human dynamics and human nature. So just like if I dropped my phone off of this table, the reason why it falls to the ground is gravity. We can attribute its behavior to gravity. We can attribute human behavior and human dynamics in part to culture. And so I I just see it as a way to understand people. And when we remove it from the equation, we, we lose a lot of understanding. So that's how I see culture. From your early beginnings in childhood, like how did you begin to understand culture whether it was your own culture or cultures of the folks around you so i come from a family of refugees my family fled from ethiopia in the 1980s because a brutal dictator took over the government and my dad was in the military in ethiopia and so he was one of the people that would be targeted if he stayed in ethiopia so he left to sudan and my mom was in sudan too also being a refugee seeking refuge in sudan and Slowly, my dad started working with relief organizations in that area, and he got sponsorship to come to the U.S. Mm -hmm. So very early on, we were out of place. We moved to St. Louis, Missouri, being black and African and immigrants and poor in in the Midwest in the 1990s. It was was not a good look. So we, we moved to the to Seattle after that about seven months later. And so it was a lot of adjusting for my family, learning how to speak English, uh, relying on government resources to pick ourselves up and find stability. We moved from public housing to public housing and we even lived in a homeless shelter at one point. So I always saw we always saw ourselves as Ethiopian first because we were in the Ethiopian community in Seattle and also, religion was big for my family. Uh, they're Orthodox, Ethiopian Orthodox Christians. Christianity played a played a big part of my of my upbringing. So, culture is culture is big for us. It it definitely defines a lot of the way we 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 see ourselves and the world around us. It's big. Nice. So, where were you born? I was born in Sudan. I was born there, and wow. we came to the U.S. when I was three years old. My brother was born there, too, but my sister was born in St. Louis once we got here. Wow. My dad, when we were in Sudan, he didn't, he didn't speak very much English, but because he was in the military, he was a little bit higher level than the, just the general soldiers. So 
when they fled to Sudan, the relief organizations there like the UN or Save the Children or Red Cross, they saw him as a leader already because of his military experience. And they would ask him to be an interpreter and to lead various initiatives that those relief organizations were holding. So he'd be walking around the refugee camp if he saw young kids with broken legs or an elderly person who needs medical attention, he would serve as that bridge between the relief organizations and refugees. And from that point on, the, 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 one of the biggest lessons I got from him is that people from within a community that needs attention are best served to help that community. So uh, myself being a first generation college student or low income in America or black or an immigrant, all these identity traits that I have, I feel that I am empowered to help that community because I understand it better, because mm -hmm. I'm, a, I'm a part of it. I can serve as a bridge between that community and uh, the, the communities that can provide attention, the communities with power. And, and I got that lesson because I, I, I heard stories about my dad and how he acted as a facilitator in these refugee camps. And so you were born in Sudan. I was born in Sudan. You lived in Sudan until you were how old? Three years old. Do you remember anything? In Sudan, you know, when you're when you're three, I, from what I hear is it's hard to decipher between real memories and dreams. That's what I've read anyway. Yeah. So I think I have some memories. I can see images of myself being a very, what's the word, mischievous child. My mom used to tell me stories about how I, we, we lived in this... We, uh, you know, refugee camp, but also in in a very in a neighborhood with where there were enclosed. There would be like a an aluminum fence enclosement and three about three houses within this enclosement, and those families would be very close. But obviously, at that time in the '80s, there were there was no running water in this area or electricity, so people lived a very agrarian and less didn't rely very much on technology so the way we got water for example was people would bring water on water from long distances and store it in these giant tin cans outside of their homes and as a kid I was just a monster I was actually a monster my mom tells these stories <laughs> laughing now but at the time I terrorized the community I was this three-year-old <laughs> so I would go around to these three different houses my house and the two neighbors that are in this enclosement collecting all the shoes from the neighbors and from our shoes and you know these shoes would be filled with sand whatever and I used to collect them all as a three-year-old and dump them into the, our water source into this can <laughs> holding all our water and my mom would just come out with a belt and running after me uh, we also had lots of animals because we, we you know farming was a big part of that we had goats and and chickens uh, we had a pet cat and I just for a long time would just terrorize all the animals just <laughs> I, 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 one of my earliest memories, which I think is a memory and not a dream, is grabbing our pet cat by the tail and just swinging it around, <laughs> swinging it around. And that cat used to run away and come back. I used to attack it, run away, come back. It was, it was not good. For some reason, animals love babies. They and do. Babies, oh, yeah. babies like, just, just hate animals. animals. It's a one-way well, like relationship. They're like animal toy that walks and they just yeah. terrorize it. Yeah. Uh, but my mom. My mom and my dad found a solution one day. They, they my dad found this uh, pet monkey that he got from uh, some neighbors. Uh, you know, he bought it from. It was this little one. It looked like the one from it's Aladdin. Real, like a real monkey. Abu. Yeah, <laughs> a real monkey. And uh, 
Uh, it looked like exactly like the one in Aladdin. It even had a little vest that it wore. And you this lie. monkey. No, I'm dead serious. I'm dead serious. This is this is a dead ass serious story. I'm telling okay. you. I need a picture. <laughs> I I don't have a picture of the monkey, but I have a picture of me. And in those pictures, you can tell from the look in my eyes what kind of kid I was. <laughs> um, <laughs> Damn it. So this this monkey just did not take my shit. Whereas the the, the little billy goats, I could pull their beard and make them cry this little monkey was not having it it just it would if i punched it it would punch me back if i <laughs> if i took its food it would snatch ice cream out of my hand um and he used to watch me anywhere i went my dad describes the story where i would be going to my bed but the monkey was already in my bed uh, it had poked a hole through my sheets and would watch me and right when i came close enough it would just bust out and scare the shit out of me Hilarious. yeah i don't believe this story. <laughs> I will, my dad is like right across the street right now at, the, at that little restaurant. He will tell you verbatim the same story. Same story. That, I like the, the, I vi- the visuals of the monkey. Look yeah, looking through a little peephole. Yeah, it's crazy. Yes. It's crazy. That's hilarious. But I learned my lesson after that. Right? Yeah. And so... And so do unto um, others what you have them do unto you. Otherwise, monkeys. Uh, monkeys especially yeah, if they're right. monkeys. Right. Goats and cats, fine. That's damn right. But monkeys. This is not to perpetuate any stereotypes about Africa, by the way. <laughs> this is a story specific to me and my no. family. Please don't go around asking other African immigrants if they had monkey pets. Listen, that this war vest. Just, this, that right. war vest. This is Listen. just my my specific experience. They're going to be like, damn, I got on the podcast. He was out there t- saying Africans, Africans have monkey have pets. Monkeys. Oh, man, Listen. it's all bad. Listen, because my dad worked so closely with those relief organizations in the in the refugee camp and in Sudan, he developed relationships with uh, a woman named Jenny Street who mm-hmm. worked for, I think it was, I think it's the UN or maybe Save the Children, one of those organizations, and she was able to help us get sponsorship to come to the U.S. Mm-hmm. and specifically they had us move to St. Louis, Missouri, which was the first state that we moved to. No. After how, we got to the U.S., how come St. Louis? I'm actually not sure. I think, I think based on the U.S. immigration policies, you you have to move to certain cities that they tell you to move to once you get sponsorship. Okay. But once you get there, I think you have more flexibility to go somewhere else, which is why we moved to Seattle after just seven months in St. Louis. Okay. Nice. Okay. Tell me about the community <clears throat> that you grew up in in Seattle. Great question. So. I grew up in South Seattle, in Rainier Vista, Holly Park, on Henderson. So a lot of public housing in South Seattle, in immigrant, mostly immigrant communities, and within the immigrant community, the, the Ethiopian immigrant community specifically. And it's a, it's a great community, very, very tight-knit. We support each other. We rely on each other. It's centered around church and the community centers. So the, we have a couple of churches around the South End, and we also have a couple of community centers in the South End. So we, we, we grew up going to different parties together. We, go to, we all go to each other's graduations. We all go to each other's weddings. So it's, it's, a, it's a very close community and big on family. A lot of people have a bigger, much, much bigger families than my family does, whether that's because they 
just have more siblings or because they were able to bring mm. their extended family over time. <clears throat> but I think we see, we seem to be one of the few families that has only our immediate family here. Mm. But it's uh, it, was, it, it was great growing up Ethiopian. I think when I was younger, I probably didn't like it as much as I do now. When I was younger, as both of you can probably relate, being different is not being cool, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. when I was in elementary school and middle school and even part of high school, there was this anti-African sentiment. And that came from white people, it came from black people, it came from Asian people, it doesn't matter. Everybody, the the names that I was called, African booty scratcher. Do you guys remember that term? I don't yes. know. Yes. Boys in the hood. Boys in the hood, that's right. <laughs> in the hood. Um, Is that where it came from? There was this derogatory term that they shortened the word Ethiopian to Ethi. They would call me and my family, they yeah. would say the word Ethi, uh, you're just an Ethi, whatever. Um, and so it was, it was really associated with lack of class being dirty, um, smelling a certain way, eating certain types of foods, not being able to speak English. And so I, I was, as a kid, like a lot of Ethiopian kids that I know was bullied for being Ethiopian. And then slowly over time, as you mature, you start to see the beauty of your culture and, and right. being yourself versus being like everyone else, that starts becoming cool. And so mm-hmm. people start over time becoming closer to their identities, learning more about their history, asking mm. their parents questions about their culture and their traditions. And so I've come to the point now where I absolutely love it. I wouldn't change it at all. And I think those early experiences probably, no, certainly played a role in my views today about embracing other people's differences mm. and looking out for the kid who's being bullied for being different and trying to empower them, teaching them about their history and their culture as a way to combat the, the bullying and the lack of self-esteem that develops from being otherized. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Did you hate your name growing up? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think I'm, I, in some ways, I still hate it, not because it's <laughs> Ethiopian or, or foreign. It's just nobody can pronounce it. I have to tell people 10 times before they 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 can they can get it and and i'm not talking about my last name dumb no shade (laughs) just talking about i i think my name g-i-r-m-a-y there it's the only name that i know that's only two syllables but both syllables are impossible to pronounce if you just read them on paper because g-i-r does not read ger it reads jur to a lot of people and then m-a-y doesn't read my it reads may to a lot of people so Going to Starbucks is an experience every time. Uh, I get I get Grammy, Jay Z, Jermaine, uh, Jermaine, Jeremiah, every name you can think of. Jeremiah. <laughs> That's hilarious. So uh, yeah, I'm, I mean I'm I'm glad I have an Ethiopian name now, just because I like being different. I like the attachment to my history, mm-hmm. uh, but it definitely wasn't easy growing up. How did you get your name? So I, my mom actually wanted to name me Daniel. We, again, we, we come from a very Christian background. So my brother has a Christian name, Samuel. And before him, my mom wanted me to be Daniel so we could be Daniel and Samuel. I guess my, my brother would hate that right now if our names <laughs> rhyme. Uh, but my dad wanted a more cultural Ethiopian name. And so he, you know, it's his way or the highway. So I, I became Germai because of that. Nice. nice. So is your middle name Daniel? No, my middle name, this is actually a great story. In Ethiopian culture, we don't have the same type of surname tradition that we have in America. As in, if your name is John Smith, 
everybody in your fam immediate family is probably named Smith, right? Their last name. Mm. Uh, but in Ethiopian culture, you're the way it played out for my family is your dad's first name becomes your middle name and your grandfather's first name becomes your last name. So my name is Germai Haddish Zahalai. Haddish is my dad's name. Zahalai is my grandfather's name. And if I go to my dad, his middle name is his dad's first name and his grandfather's name is his last name. So his name is Haddish Zahalai Buru. And so what, what the consequence of this is that I don't have the same last name as either one of my parents because their last names are their grandfather's last names, right? Wow. Not my grandfather's last name, which is my last name. But the cool outcome of this is that I can trace my paternal lineage all the way back based on first names because uh, as kids were taught that string of names that led to your name. So my name is Germai Haddish Zahlai, my dad and my grandpa's name. Um, but I can go back probably 10 generations. Germai Haddish Zahlai Burru Hagos Walanchi Al Timurtu Walias Hailias Mahlat. You know, I just read 10 generations back. And, and, and for a lot of people, they're, they're taught the stories and the history attached to each of those names. So in this way, parents are able to share the stories of their paternal lineage with their kids. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, it's sad that it's just paternal lineage, but welcome to the patriarchy, right? A lot of, <laughs> a lot of cultures are like that. I would love to know more about my Damn grandmas it. and things like that. What made you break outside of those cultural norms outside of like force because you wanted friends to play with that recess but what gave you that confidence i think first of all the the, the lack of ethiopians in in my class year was probably a big part of it i'm sure if they were in my class year i would have naturally gravitated towards them but because they weren't there i was forced to make friends outside of my culture and outside of my ethnicity and my, the, the, the classes that I took probably had a lot to do with, with that as well. And, you know, I've, I've just always been somebody who loves and is able to interact with different groups of people. I remember vividly my senior year in high school, an assembly let out and people were just all over around Franklin High School, just standing around talking to each other. And I remember going just from group to group Talk, uh, talking to this group and then moving on talking to that group and then I just stood back and said wow I was just able to interact with like 10 different groups I feel <laughs> I feel good about this nice. and and you know in a, in a weird way I think part of that was because I was so uh, like I like I mentioned before otherized and 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 uh, bullied a little bit for being Ethiopian when I was in elementary school that always taught me to embrace other cultures and also to just be very nice to people because I think I was insecure growing up in in, in elementary you better be nice to people or they're going to make fun of you right <laughs> so so the, the those early experiences I think have a lot to do with uh, my ability to navigate different groups and different cultures mm. I guess before before you graduated from Franklin did you know what was college always in your sights and did you know what you wanted to do and what you wanted to be? For sure. So I, I definitely, I thought at the time I knew what I wanted to. I, I, I had done very well in high school and when you're an immigrant kid who does well in high school, the cultural pressure tells you to be a doctor. You know, mm -hmm. if, you know in, yeah. in Ethiopia and, and maybe in a lot of countries in the Eastern Hemisphere, being right. a doctor is next to nobility. It's a status symbol. Yeah. It's yeah. not just a profession. So <laughs> uh, growing up, I was told, be a doc you're smart, be a doctor, be a doctor, be mm -hmm. a doctor. So uh, I, college was definitely on my radar. I thought I wanted to be a doctor, and that's how I approached my the 
I that's how I approached everything academically from high school and on. Mm, that's great. So so then you graduated high school. Graduated high school. I ended up going to Stanford University in Palo Alto, California, and I was in high school mode once I got there. I thought I had to take all the hardest chemistry classes, all the hardest math classes. Oh, no. I was on a mission to become a doctor and do the, all the pre-medical studies. That was a big mistake. Oh, no. Big time mistake because when, when you're performing in, at Franklin High School, the, the rigor is different <laughs> right, than what it's definitely. at Stanford. Yeah. So I was taking all the hardest classes and I was just overwhelmed. And at the same time, I, Dom, I think you were going to ask me about this, but culturally Stanford is much different mm, from Franklin. Right. And it, for me, it wasn't really a, a racial, it wasn't staggering from a racial perspective because I was already used to diversity from Franklin. Franklin, the diversity there is unlike anything I've ever seen in anywhere in the real world. It was like 30% black, 30% Asian, some amount white. It felt very mixed. So once I got to campus, I was I was generally used to the diversity that was on uh, on the campus, but I wasn't ready for the socioeconomic difference. Mm. So everybody felt to me that they were wealthy. Everyone's Mm -hmm. parents had gone to fancy colleges. Neither of my parents went to high school or college. Mm -hmm. So that was a a big, stark difference. And it it made me feel very insecure. You know, I had imposter syndrome. Do I belong Mm -hmm. here? I'm different than anyone. So my way of compensating for that was I'm going to be a a leader on campus. I, I can't just take classes because... I, you know, these classes are really hard, so I have to excel somewhere else. And so I joined a lot of extracurricular activities. I tried to be a leader on campus. And, you know, that, that was great for my development, but it wasn't great in allowing me to focus on my academics. So, you know, I, I did fine. I didn't do as well as I, as I wanted to do. So that, that was definitely, you know, it was a hard time academically. Yeah. And I, the direction that I was going was pre-med, which was not my true passion. Mm-hmm. And after my freshman year in college, I, I was actually accepted to this program at Duke, a, med- a summer medical program at Duke. And I watched uh, a mother give birth in the hospital because I was shadowing doctors there. And everybody else in this hospital room that actually wanted to be a doctor, all the other students were like, oh my God the miracle of life this is just so beautiful <laughs> they were all excited you could find me in the corner lurched over like ready to throw i was just i could i couldn't do like that wasn't beautiful to me i just i can't look at human insides i can't look at blood i couldn't look at any of that i felt bad because i probably ruined this woman's birth with just my facial expressions but so everyone's no. like everyone's like what's wrong with germay yeah germay right <laughs> How come he's not as excited? Yeah, so so I, I knew from that moment that my desire to be a doctor was j- purely cultural pressure and not, not, had nothing to do with my personal passions. Oh, no. But, you know, I was already, you know, two years deep into my to my classes, so I didn't want to stop. So I, I kept doing the, the, the pre-med requirements, and um, senior year came, and... I was, you know, graduation was right around the corner and I had to make a decision. Holy shit, if I keep doing this, I'm going to end up doing a career that I hate, that I, that I frankly, I can't even look at. Literally wants to make me throw up. <laughs> right. So I knew that my, my actual passion was 
helping people from backgrounds like mine, low-income families, immigrant families, families who don't have a voice politically. So I applied for this anti-poverty fellowship program that has a really innovative model. The first six months of the year, you're anywhere in the U.S. doing ground-level work where you're interacting directly with clients experiencing poverty. You could be at a soup kitchen or a, a community health center. Just as long as you're doing programs that benefit people directly and you're interacting with those clients directly. Mm. The second six months, you go to Washington, D.C., and you do policy-level work around those same issues. So I was in Brooklyn, uh, Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, for the first six months doing community health work. And the second six months, I went to D.C., and I was taking the research that I did in Brooklyn and presenting it to the elected officials for that district in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. So doing policy level wow. work, advocacy level work uh, around those same issues. So it was a really cool experience and definitely much closer to what I wanted to do. And when I was in D.C., I met a lot of doctors. Uh, sorry, I met a lot of lawyers there. Everybody seemed to be a lawyer in D.C. Mm-hmm. And I felt that that was a great way to give me the tools to accomplish my goals, which was helping uh, low-income people oh. on a policy level. And you knew you wanted to be a lawyer? Wanted to be a lawyer at that nice. time, yeah. And then what happened? So then, I, at the end of the fellowship, I decided to apply to law school. And so I took the LSAT. I got a I got a job at a startup law firm in San Francisco, so I worked there, and I got into University of Pennsylvania Law School in Philly, and I went there for three years. And man, law school was rough. <laughs> law school was rough, especially the first year. It's just, you know, in college, maybe this is your experience too, but I didn't study until maybe the day before an exam, mm-hmm. or if a paper was due one day, I was starting it the day before or the couple days before. In law, you don't have that privilege in law school. There's just so much material right. that you have to pace yourself. And mm-hmm. there, there wasn't the, there weren't the checkpoints that you had in, in college where you have midterms and mm-hmm. problem sets and homework assignments to turn in periodically. You have four months of classes and an exam at the end of the four months. Mm-hmm. So if you're not disciplined and you only wait to that one metric that measures your success you're gonna bomb big time so i had to suddenly find ways to study regularly for four months straight and keep on top of all the reading Mm. and you know it was but but because i knew my college experience where i joined too many extracurriculars and i jumped into all the hardest classes all at once i came into law school with all the lessons that i got from college and that i'm gonna pace myself i'm not gonna join everything I'm going to focus on my academics and I did much better in law school than I did. You know, I did fine yeah. in college, but I did I did I did pretty well in law school. Nice. Yeah. Where did you find mentorship? That's a great question. Mentorship is huge for me because like I mentioned before, I um I don't my neither of my parents went to high school or college, so I had to find guidance from other sources in in those realms. My parents were great in terms of working hard and helping us out, but they just don't have the background to provide mentorship in in the ways that I needed it academically and professionally. So I found it in college through all my extracurricular involvements. I found it in law school from a couple of my professors and, and my bosses for the jobs that I had and 
always for me it's it's not finding people who are most like you but the people who you have chemistry with personality wise so for example my my the the fellowship program that i was telling you about before my my one of my closest mentors to this day is is a white woman and she is just so outgoing and very very tough in terms of what she requires of you if i gave her an essay and there were any mistakes oh she was destroying that essay and coming for me in terms of doing better next time and i really appreciate that uh, I have another mentor who was my professor in law school, and he was also my, uh, he was my, um, he was the person that I, that helped me get my externship while I was in, in, in law school too. I, I externed at the White House my, my third year in law school, and he's the same way. He made me write down my goals and checked in periodically, and was just very very meticulous and rigorous about following up and making sure that i'm meeting my goals so i, I really appreciate that from people um and you know building that relate that building those relationships takes time and it takes following up on my part i can't just assume that because i have chemistry with somebody that they're going to be my lifelong mentor that's something that i have to work at mm -hmm. and you were a mentor as well right i am i I really, really value mentorship, and it's my, probably my greatest passion. So when I, all throughout college, I was mentoring high school students. Uh, during law school, I was mentoring students. And today, I do mentorship on several levels. On the college level, there's this organization called America Needs You in New York, and they pair young professionals like myself with first-generation, low-income college students who are freshmen or sophomores. And as part of a two-year program, you guide them through various workshops, uh, professional development workshops. And so that gave me an idea that we need to be doing this at the middle school level, too. It's great that we're doing it at the college level, but often college level is a little too late from yeah. the, from the, for the kids that really, really need mentorship. And the other thing I noticed is that there are so many young professionals in New York and probably a lot of different cities that are... In that city for a job there there it's a transient experience for them New York has a lot of transient professionals as I think Seattle is starting to become like that too yep. these individuals want to be in, come involved in their communities they want to be integrated they want to give back but because they're not from there they don't know what avenues to pursue in order to achieve that goal so uh, my idea was that we have all these young professionals we we have thousands of low-income students at middle schools that are underperforming we need to be pairing these students so in 2015 uh, myself and a couple of friends started a mentorship program called rising leaders and just as america needs you does professional development workshops and provides mentorship at the college level we wanted to do that at the middle school level so uh, we started working with the school called sojourner truth in harlem five percent of their students pass math state exams, 8% pass English, high special needs in mm. that school. And so definitely there's a lot of room for help. And my goal was to, one, get these uh, young professionals invested in the lives of these students. Uh, and two, give these students exposure to various professional outcomes 
make them feel like anything is possible because our, our mentors tend to be uh, black and from low-income backgrounds themselves. And we do workshops at these schools. So we've done uh, combating negative stereotypes, that workshop. We've done public speaking. We've done uh, career development. We've done college applications. So very holistic approach to mentorship. But hopefully in, you know, in five, 10 years, when these students are graduating high school, they have professionals that they can look at and say, hey, I know a lawyer. I know a doctor. I know an engineer. I know an artist. Uh, they can write my letters of recommendation for me. But also they've shown me the different paths that I can pursue so that I don't think being a doctor is the only professional outcome mm-hmm. that they can pursue if they're, if they're smart. Right. So, that, you know, I, that was my experience. I didn't know what professional outcomes I could pursue because my, neither of my parents went to high school or college and I just had the cultural influence to be a doctor. And so if these kids are able to see that, hopefully one day they will be able to look back and say, man, Rising Leaders, that organization really helped open my world for me. And the, the young professionals, hopefully they can say, wow, I, got, I was able to volunteer and work in Harlem and not just be another corporate suit in New York but I was really invested in that community. And if I, if I can achieve those goals through Rising Leaders, I'll feel great about it. Dope. Super dope. Nice. Uh, one of my uh, freshmen when I was an RA at Stanford my senior year, his name is Michael Tubbs, and he is currently the youngest mayor of a large city in the history of America. So he's the mayor of Stockton, California, which has a population oh, about yeah. 300,000 or more. And he's only 26 years old and somehow managed to become elected the mayor. He's a, yes. he's wow. a great guy. And, um, you know, I'm really proud of him and I'm excited to be his groomsman uh, later this year. Hashtag reinvent Stockton. Shout reinvent out. Stockton. That's right. <laughs> Give him a shout out. Hey man, shout out Michael Tubbs. <laughs> so tell us about the White House externship. Oh, man, it was great. So my third year in law school, I applied for the White House internship program. And my law school allowed me to get credits if I do an externship at the White House. So instead of taking classes, I would get a semester's worth of credits for doing that externship. Best thing I ever did. I didn't have to take final exams, which was (laughs) awesome. And also I got to experience working at the White House, which for me coming from South Seattle, first generation, low income, getting that experience what meant everything to me and actually my both of my parents probably the most proud i've ever been in my life one my dad updated his facebook status yes he has a facebook where he uh, he put up a picture of me and uh, barack obama and he wrote this really beautiful status that said uh, there are no broken bridges from a small village in ethiopia all the way to the white house anything is possible with hard work And I was like, wow, that's so beautiful. (laughs) And then my mom, too, she took that same photo and she was showing it to her friends at the the nursing home where she works. And she was saying uh, how proud she was. And I was on the phone with her. She was telling me this story. And she said, for the first time, I felt like somebody. And I just, you know, that got me choked up because, you know, it's it's really hard being uh, an immigrant in the U.S., especially if you don't have any formal education. And so it's, it's a really hard life raising three kids, um, not knowing the language, not having much money. And so for her to feel like sh- like that, like she said, she felt like somebody for the first time, uh, I'm really glad that I could uh, help make that happen. 
Um, the externship was great, though. I worked in the office of White House Counsel, which is like the legal department for the president. They help define the legal parameters for his policy agenda. So if he's trying to figure out how to provide affordable health care to people, that department would figure out how does that work with state rights. Mm -hmm. If he's trying to do some executive action, like some policy on Syria, they would have to think about the president's executive powers um, and what the parameters are for that. So I, you know, I wrote memos, I did research, I uh, had to listen to congressional hearings and briefings and write summaries of that that uh, sometimes went to brief the president. And I also was an intern, so I did things like get people Pepsi. <laughs> <laughs> wow. You know, take notes, all, all, all those things that, that go along with it. But, you know, that exposure was great. I made a, a lot of connects that hopefully will help me in the long run. And, and I learned a ton. It was an awesome experience, and I'm glad I did it. Talk to me about the influence of like just traveling. For sure. Travel is, is huge for me because I every time I go somewhere, I feel like my world is, is opened up a little bit more. Um, when I, really, my explosion of, of travel, and an explosion is an exaggeration. I just mean from going from no travel to some travel. <laughs> uh, right before I, when I got into law school, I felt like, man, I looked out into my, my immediate future and I said, I'm gonna be studying all the time. And after that, I'm gonna be working all the time. And I just had a mid quarter life crisis right there at age 24 or 25. And so I said, I'm gonna travel. So I asked a bunch of my friends, do you wanna go to Southeast Asia with me? People would say yes and then flake, say yes and then flake, say yes and then flake. And so finally I was like, you know what? I'm gonna go by my damn self. I don't need anybody <laughs> else. So I, I booked the ticket to uh, Thailand, Cambodia and Singapore and I just went by myself. And of course, I told my mom that I was going with a bunch of friends, so she wouldn't worry. Um, <laughs> Does she know now that you went by yourself? No, definitely not. Okay. Don't so, tell her. Don't, so she don't can't send listen her this to this podcast. Okay. No. <laughs> Noted. Sorry, mom. Uh, it was it was a lot of fun though. So um, Thailand was a, a big. It felt like there was a lot of partying, and it was a lively country. Uh, Cambodia is a country that's recovering from a lot of mm -hmm. trauma. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there was a genocide there and there's still a lot of poverty there and a lot of their culture seems to be influenced by those traumatic experiences. And so that was more of a, a somber trip where I, I, I read a lot and I visited a lot of the, the fields where some of the genocides happen, happened. Um, Singapore just made me realize that Whereas I thought America was probably the most advanced country in the world. I land in Singapore and their mm -hmm. infrastructure is crazy. There's not a single piece of litter on the ground. Mm -hmm. yeah. Everything looks like it is high tech. The trains arrive on time every time to the millisecond. <laughs> and so that really made me feel like, wow, there's there's more to the world than America. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. Absolutely. And, you know, ever since then, I, I felt like, I can make friends when I travel by myself. I can stay at hostels. Um, the world is bigger than just my my little world, and so it's it's a great learning experience. It's a lot of fun, and I'm, I just feel like I'm not the kind of guy that wants to go travel and sit on a beach all day. I want to do things. So mm. right. When I, <laughs> right. I agree. That's me too. I have friends who literally will pay thousands of dollars for a ticket and then just sit on a beach for I like know. two weeks. I listen. So what did you what did you do on your trip? So in that South Southeast Asia trip, 
I for in Thailand I went to this small town called Chiang Mai. Have you oh, all heard yeah. of it? It's mm-hmm. uh, it's in more north than than Bangkok, and it fed every single adventurous desire that I have. I did bungee jumping while I was there. I went to the Tiger Kingdom and played with tiger cubs and grown tigers. I did the whole elephant through the jungle experience. I did white water rafting. Way better than just sitting on a beach, right? Right. Uh, I went to this, uh, these islands. I think they're called PP islands. And these little monkeys come and like steal fruit from your hands. It was, so, yeah, back to the monkeys. Right? <laughs> Are they relatives? Right. No, like, they, they were not wearing you. any vests. No vests on these ones. <laughs> yeah, so, so that was great. And, and if I had my ideal world, every vacation that I go on would be like that. Um, I went to, to Hawaii a, a little bit before that and I went with three friends and it was just 10 days of sitting on a beach and I wanted yeah. to scream i hated it so much yeah where else have been like your favorite places to travel oh that's a good probably number one for personal reasons has to be ethiopia i Mm. went in 2009 for the first time and it showed me how much of your identity depends on your context Mm -hmm. when i'm in the u.s because of my context i'm black i'm an immigrant i'm low income i'm you know skinny, whatever, all these different identity traits mm. because because it's identity by contrast to everybody around you. Mm. I went to Ethiopia, suddenly different parts of me that I had never understood to be my identity became my identity. I was American. You know, when you're in America, you don't yeah. go around thinking right. I'm American. Right. I was super wealthy because you come from here and you go back there, mm. you're, you're just automatically rich. I was no longer really nobody really thinks about you as being black anymore because that's just not the racial context over there and so suddenly i was like wow i have to really confront my privilege and i have to confront my ignorance and uh also i just witnessed this beautiful culture because in ethiopia we don't they don't have the same racial and ethnic diversity uh, that you see in the U.S. There is that, but in a different way. For you, you, you stand in the street and you look around, most people look like they're the same ethnicity and the same race, just appearance-wise. And I think that ha- has an impact on the way people interact with each other. You know how human beings are. If somebody looks different from you, they're all, all of a sudden not the same as you. They don't deserve the same rights as you. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really a terrible part of human nature. But uh, over there, because there is more... Uh, it's more homogeneous um, or homogeneous. Uh, you could see a forty-year-old a, a man who doesn't know a kid. If a kid is being uh, mischievous or doing something wrong, the forty-year-old man can bend down over and like slap the kid on the hand and say, "Don't do that," because it's more like a giant family than it is strangers. If a forty-year-old man in the U.S. slaps a kid <laughs> on the street, especially if they're different races, oh no, it's that's going, not. It's, it's going about to go down. down. Lawsuits on lawsuits on lawsuits. <laughs> Right. All day. Uh, so it was really amazing. I, I love that aspect of it. It felt like people were family members. It felt like people could be uh, close to one another. Uh, there's a big emphasis on family, and I, I just I, I really loved that. And I appreciated finding my extended family, which I had never met before. Right. So I met all my uncles, my cousins, my grandmother, and they all treated me like I was their brother you know i was their relative but they had never seen me and yet Mm -hmm. they just showed me all of the love in the world my grandma was in tears because 
I'm her grandson and she just had never seen me in, in mm-hmm. probably 20 years at that point. Wow. So it was it was really a wonderful experience. That's amazing. Wow. That's amazing. Let that breathe for a minute. Let that breathe. <laughs> um, Let that breathe. Has any of your family been to the U.S. from Ethiopia uh, to visit? No, or? I don't think so. Oh, okay. I don't think so. Yeah, you know, it's hard to get a travel visa. I, oh. I, I think that's probably part of the problem. Yeah. That's interesting. Did you need a visa to go? To Ethiopia? Yeah. I'm sure I did. Okay. I'm, I don't know for sure. I, my dad was handling all of that, but mm. yeah. yeah, I don't think so. I think I did have to have one. Where did the role of technology come in for you? So, interesting you asked that, actually. So, when I went to Ethiopia was right after I graduated college, literally like a couple of weeks. I went from a setting where I was surrounded by all of my closest friends, surrounded by access to technology and the internet, and I took those things for granted. I didn't know how much I needed them and how much I was addicted to them. Mm-hmm. So I went from that environment to being plopped down with my dad in Ethiopia, which at the time, the, the parts of Ethiopia we visited, because we visited the very rural parts where my dad is from, mm. I suddenly had no access to internet, no access to uh, my phone or computers or anything like that. And I felt cut off from the world. Mm. I just took for granted the fact that when you have a phone and you have computers, you're immediately connected to everything in the world. Right. You can have instantly have access to information, instantly be in communication with your friends as if they're right next to you. And then I go there and boom, it's like all those cords were cut. And I'm in the middle of a country that I had never been to before. And very slowly uh, across weeks, I started to notice the same symptoms that you would get from a drug addict no longer mm-hmm. having mm-hmm. access to drugs, you know. Yeah. Withdrawal. I started yeah. being withdrawal. <laughs> yeah. I started being super short with my dad. I was irritable. <laughs> I, I was I was depressed. I felt alone. And so it's the perfect case study for where we are with technology today. And millennials. They, it's it, it, with millennials, that's right. There it's so integrated into every facet of our lives. Right that we are emotionally intertwined with it. And so I was there and cut off from this emotional connection and I was just a bad, I became a bad person. (laughs) And so we found this internet cafe one day and I just (laughs) binged, I binged. I'm telling you, I was probably, I probably sat there for, no exaggeration, probably like eight hours I sat there on the internet emailing all my friends, checking my Facebook, uploading photos, and I was just like, it was straight like internet to the veins. I was taking it all in. And I was great. I, cr- I don't I care did. how slow this is. Oh, right. man. Dial up. Yeah. So, so what role does technology play in my life? <laughs> A huge role. It plays a big role in my life. You know, it's the way I get all of my tasks done. It's the way I communicate with all of my friends. It's it's hard to envision myself without <laughs> technology even. So that's a, you asked a very profound question right, right now. Right, right. So being disconnected, you didn't feel... Relieved? Yeah. No, oh, no. I know, I know a lot of people who are that way who are just like, oh... It's so great not to have the notifications and not yeah. have it. No, that's not me. I need it. I need it so bad. <laughs> yeah. How long were you in Ethiopia for? Probably about six to eight weeks, somewhere okay. that oh, range. Wow. And it felt so like forever. For yeah, <laughs> I, was, 
I was disconnected for a long time. Oh man, yeah, it was a good experience though. It taught me that I, I need to like you know get some space away from that. <laughs> That's hilarious. So with you being the oldest, leaving the house to go to Stanford and then to go to DC, Philadelphia to live in these different places, like how was that for your family? Were they always okay with you being so far away? Or did you tell them that you were coming back? Or And I have an addendum. Mm-hmm. So you know how your mom said, oh, now I feel like I'm somebody? Yeah, yeah. What did she think of your siblings? I mean, or what did they think? Like, damn it, now we got to live up to this expectation. Mm. Oh, man, you guys are asking some of the deepest questions of my life right now. <laughs> very, very deep. So in terms of my living far away from my family, that is a huge weight on my conscience. It's something that I think about all the time. And it's the main reason why I'm moving back to Seattle very soon. Mm-hmm. But it's hard because as the oldest child in a family where neither of my parents went to high school or college, and for a lot of, you know, my parents are divorced too. So mm-hmm. my dad wasn't in the house and my mom to raise three kids had to work mm-hmm. about three jobs at the same time, three low paying jobs. And so she was out of the house a lot. And so I was the parent for my siblings for a long time. Mm. And that obviously shaped a lot of who I am today in terms of being risk averse and being more more responsible and being more of a parent to my brother and sister probably than I should be. Mm. But also when I left, I'm constantly thinking about the well-being of my family. And in the back of my head, a lot of the things that I do are for the well-being of my family, primarily you know, being a source of income, pursuing jobs that will pay me enough to support my family, mm-hmm. at least, or at least uh, pay me enough to support my family, the, the perception that's in my head of my role in my family. Mm-hmm. Um, so leaving, I'm, I'm, you know, it was hard for my mom, especially in the beginning. She wanted to call me three times a day, <laughs> four times a day, five times a day, every few hours. And, you know, slowly I, over across years, I had to set the expectation that we're only going to talk once a day and then once every two days and then once a week and once a week took probably literally like 12 years you know, how, <laughs> <laughs> meaning from 2005 to 2017 that's how yeah. long it took me to get to once a week yeah. um i think over time they they got used to it but it's still something that weighs on me would you know would my pe- family be better off if i had just stayed at home and gone to a local school but ultimately I have my mindset on the long term and I think I would be better able to serve them if I got certain types of experiences and also for me to live out my life in a way that'll make me happiest too I think if I'm happiest I'll be able to serve my family better so that that it's you know it's something that weighs on me a lot and and affects my my long-term goals mm-hmm. I always imagine what it would be like if I didn't have, uh, if I wasn't the oldest or if I didn't perceive myself to be in a certain role of responsibility, mm. what what would my goals look like? But my goals are defined by, by the well-being of my family. So mm. I will be moving back here this summer. I hope that I can spend more time with my with my mom, um, my dad too, who, who recently moved back to Ethiopia, but when he's in Seattle, to spend more time with him, with my brother and sister. I just, I would love the idea of, bringing my family over to have coffee in my own apartment, uh, helping my mom pay rent, you know, as she gets older, being able to provide for her. Right. Uh, that's, that's definitely stuff that's on, on my mind. And then your addendum was, do, do, 
do do the things that I do do they make my siblings feel a certain type of way yeah you know <laughs> well just you know if your mom's like oh first time I feel what did you say that she feels like she's someone <laughs> she feels like she's somebody for yeah. the first time yeah so you know that's that's a complicated question and my brother my brother and sister and I are are best friends right we're in a group chat together we talk all the time I really hope that that's not how they feel I I, I can't say for sure I would, I would have to ask them but I try my best to you know recognize all the great things that they do and they're there they all we're all great in our own ways so hopefully they've been able to get recognition for that Absolutely. what was life like after law school for me after law school has been what I call the final stage in the preparation phase of my life. A lot of us do things to prepare for some goal that's in the future, whether that's college or law school or, or doing a, a job. I'll answer more directly. The job that I just finished, I was uh, a corporate lawyer at a big New York City law firm and I practiced mergers and acquisitions, meaning when a, a company wants to combine with another company or acquire another company, my firm would facilitate that process. So if Apple wants to buy Beats by Dre, if Verizon wants to buy T-Mobile, any of these combinations, we would handle the contract negotiation, drafting the contracts, bringing in all the specialist attorneys to review, figuring out who's gonna be the new CEO of the new combined company, what are the board of directors gonna look like, what shareholders are gonna get, all that whole process we would figure out. So that in and of itself is not something that I want to do long-term, but it was a preparation for me. I think it's great to understand business and corporations. Uh, it's great to, build my skills as a lawyer and as, as an attorney and also to get as many mentors as I can from that setting. So it was a preparation process. And that being said, doing a job that you're not passionate about in itself is can be tedious mm. and tiring. Uh, I was working long hours every day for the past three years. Not every day, but most of the time. And when I talk about long hours, I'm talking about getting to work in the morning one day and not leaving until the morning the next day. Wow. Or like two or three days in some cases without Jeez. leaving or showering or going to sleep or anything like that. So mm -hmm. it was very hard, but I, it's one of the most valuable and rewarding experiences for me because of the mentors I got and the training that I got. But now I feel that it's time to finish collecting feathers in my cap mm -hmm. and preparing and finally do what I want to do, which is helping people through government and through policy, um, through leadership. And that's what I'm coming back to Seattle to do. And I'm, I'm really excited about that. But it's also scary because it's the first time in my life where success is not already defined for me. Mm -hmm. You know, when we go through college, success is defined. It's getting good grades. Mm -hmm. uh, during law school, it's getting internships and getting good grades. And it feels like there are these very clear incremental steps that you take towards a, a very clear and defined goal. And suddenly now I've done all of that and I have to define success myself. And that's part scary and part exciting. But yeah. I'm, I'm up for the challenge. That's awesome. This is going to be so cool. That's I'm, exciting. I'm actually, I'm really excited to have you back. Thank you. I'm really, really excited, excited to yeah, be back. Yeah, he's very excited. Yes. He told me yesterday. Yeah. I told him. D-Mizzle. Yes. We I'm, out here. Listen, I'm so excited. Um, 
how are you preparing yourself for being back in Seattle and, and as far as the culture of Seattle and the culture of politics in Seattle? Oof, that's a great question. So part of what I want to do in the next year or the next couple of years is bring myself up to speed to the political landscape and understand the dynamics in Seattle because like both of you said, I haven't lived here full time since I was 18. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to have to learn that a lot. But the goals that I have are almost independent from the politics of Seattle because, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't see participation from my communities in politics the way that I'd like to see it. Mm -hmm. My main goal is to galvanize and awaken the immigrant and low-income and black communities in Seattle and get them to participate in the political process and have their voices heard mm -hmm. and shape the policies that take place in Seattle because it feels like the city is moving forward without those voices. Yep. And you both Absolutely. do a lot of work <laughs> in this space, but Red Apple is a staple and it's about right. to be gone. Yeah. Uh, a lot of places in the South and where I grew up are not the same place anymore. Right. And it doesn't feel like the voices of these huge communities that make the city what it is are being heard. Right. And so if I can provide uh, a platform for platform for those communities that that's something that I would really really love to do the other thing I want to do is focus on the youth and kids and that's something that I've done a lot throughout my life through the mentorship programs and various other organizations through college and after and in law school and after that so if it, those are my two primary goals and I I, I think understanding the politics would definitely help but i would rather focus on those communities and understand those communities before i jump into understanding politics and everything like that in seattle which i will have to do eventually lastly one of my big goals has to do with the trend that we're seeing on a national level which is things are shifting to the right and by that i mean donald trump uh, we saw the Tea Party movement a few years back. We're seeing the alt-right movement. We're seeing conservative politics just sweep across this country mm -hmm. um, at the state and local level. It's not even a competition. Right. Like I think President Obama being elected twice put us to sleep about what's happening mm -hmm. at the state and local mm -hmm. levels. But if we're talking about House and, and city level politics across the country progressives and liberals and democrats are losing that battle extremely yeah. so yeah. Uh, i think seattle is in a great place uh to combat that yeah but i also hope we don't go toward this trend of is, is the term neoliberal where mm -hmm. you know it's more of like a corporate liberal right. where you're not really thinking about race and, and poverty and, and things of that nature mm -hmm. so i want to have a platform that even if i don't win if i end up running for something that just pushes the conversation absolutely. toward that absolutely and i i think about even this next mayor race and i'm excited for nikita oliver one i do believe that she can win mm -hmm. and i believe that she will win i hope so um more than the W, it's really bringing a larger population of folks whom like have not typically voted, particularly yes. African Americans, Black folks, yes, who have particularly not been excited or, to even pay attention right. to local politics, right? And why right? would they, right? Right, why absolutely, would they? absolutely, right? And so, and so, 
I think there's an opportunity to get younger folks involved in the process and mm-hmm. understanding like, oh yeah, that's that's Nikita. She looks mm-hmm. like us. She was just at Franklin last week. Mm-hmm. She's got this spoken word. She talks like us. She dresses like us. Yep. Um, and I think that if we can multiply the number of younger folks who were interested in this, that would be amazing. And, and really digging deep on those issues of poverty, um, housing, homelessness, police right. reform, yes. like all of these things that young folks have found a way to say, but wait, there's there's these places that are doing it way better than us, whether mm-hmm. it's locally or uh, right. internationally, like how about we give it a try? Yes. Um, and let's not just claim to be progressive, but let's actually be yes. progressive. 100% agreed. Yeah. 100% so, agreed. It's interesting. Got a little political. <laughs> just a smidge. Good. Just yes, a I love it. I love it. We at the forefront, Dom. That's it. Let's, let's, it. let's get it. Let's get it. What uh, What advice would you give your younger self? Ooh, that's a good one. First of all... I stole it from Yoshi. <laughs> I would say that don't let others define what success looks like for you. Mm. I mentioned this a bunch throughout this, but I I felt like I had to be a doctor because everybody around me told me that I needed to be a doctor. Mm. Um, And a lot of people fall victim to that, feeling like they have to live up to their parents' expectations or society's expectations. But really, if you are able to sit down and ask yourself, what makes me the happiest and what am I good at, you will find the right route for yourself. And I say that with the acknowledgement that for first generation or low income kids, they have an added wrinkle where they have responsibilities beyond their years, right? So I remember I actually sat down with a counselor when I was at Stanford asking her, she wanted to give me advice about career advice. And all she kept saying is, follow your dreams, follow what you love. And I just couldn't process that because I also knew that I also have to make money to help my family. Mm. So you can't just give that advice willy nilly. So if I was gonna sit down with my younger self who is a kid from those circumstances, I would tell him, yes, money is, is important, but just bring your personal goals and your the things that you love to do at least on equal par with money and mm-hmm. and and the things that you have to do to provide for your family because if you don't you're going to pursue a career that you don't like and ultimately you won't be good at providing for right. your family because right. you'll be miserable so mm-hmm. if those two things are not on equal footing you know being responsible and helping provide for your family but also following your 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 passions and the things that you're good at uh, you need to do those two things. So that's that's what I would say to my younger self. And that way I would major in something that I was more passionate about. Um, and I would ultimately be happier back then as well. That's real. That's real. I might need to have you come to talk to my students. <laughs> I would love to. Facts. Serious. So thank you, first of all. Like, like Thank you for allowing us to sit down. Um, and spend so much time, so much of your time. Like this was, this was very inspiring and wonderful. It's been an absolute nice. pleasure. Thank yeah. you so much for having me. Thank like you. I said, I really admire people who, who pursue their goals. Absolutely. Dom, you do like fifteen things. I'm sure <laughs> Yoshko, you do that too. Right. Uh, so I'm, I'm excited to keep working with you all. Yes, we're excited too. Let's do it. This is Gurmai Zahla, and you just listened to No Blueprint. <laughs>